Now, I got to know, was, was the clap for me coming up or the... Pardon me? Lee, yeah, yeah. I thought it was probably for Lee. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, boy, I, I love having life and, uh, and interaction and knowing that you're all out there. I, I could close my eyes and still know you're there. And uh, sometimes that's not the case. So with this service, that's always the case. And that's, that's really awesome. Hey, last week, uh, Luke carried on in our series, Life in the Wild, and he gave a message that was directed to uh, the, the uh, biblical answers on where does sickness come from? Uh, where does pain and suffering come from? And uh, so often in Christian circles, we view it as uh, God gave it to us. God made me sick. God uh, did that to teach me a lesson. Or he did that to help me learn something or to love him more or to grow more. And uh, that's pretty common thinking among believers today. And it really is an attempt to uh, balance the pain that we're experiencing with the goodness of God and and try to uh, figure out how can God be good and yet this still happened to me. And so the answer in this respect is, well, God gave it to me. So I, you know, for the greater good, so he could teach me. But um, that, um, you know, that thinking really kind of falls short. I think it, it leaves us uh, without any anticipation of experiencing God's goodness or of actually having a desire to persevere in, uh, pr- in pursuing God and pursuing healing. Because ultimately, if I believe he gave it to me, then why would I want to get rid of it? I mean, if I believe he gave it to me, why would I want to get rid of, of what God gave me for the purpose of teaching me? And um, what that leaves us at, I've experienced this, where people didn't want prayer because uh, they thought God gave it to them, or they got prayer once or twice, and they thought, well, I wasn't healed, so it must not be God's will to take this away from me yet, so I'm not going to go a third time. I'm not going to... I'm not going to keep coming back to God. And again, I come back to the notion, if that's true, God really gave it to me. And if I'm thinking, well, I shouldn't go for any more prayer because God hasn't healed me to this point, then I would ask the question, uh, are you going to a doctor? Well, if God gave it to you and you think he wants you to have it, then why would you go to the doctor to get rid of it? I mean, we're all for going to doctors because our viewpoint is, Suffering and pain come from the kingdom of darkness. It's not God. It's not God that gives a person cancer or that causes a tragic accident. Now, here's where the confusion comes in, I believe. God will always take that horrible thing, and when we're at the right point of grief over a loss, like losing a family member to an accident or losing someone in some tragic way, when we're to the place that we're at a level of dealing with our grief that we can just say, God, you know, what do you want to show me through this? We will be taught because he always draws close to us and teaches us. But to confuse that with saying he is the origin of the bad, that he caused the bad, then gives us a different view of God and, and, and really plays with our definition of God as being good. And it really impacts our heart response to God. Because 
you know, we're not sure what good means. And good is a mystery. You know, in some places, good is uh, someone runs a st- stoplight and broadsides you. And well, that was from God. So in some mysterious way, it was good. Well, what we've, what are the theology we're holding is this, that God is good all the time. That that, that, that car running the stoplight and broadsiding uh, you or, or whomever, that is not God. That is not God doing that because God is good all the time. And his, his sovereignty, what that means, is kind of a mystery to us. We don't fully comprehend his sovereignty. Now, the other way to take it is to say, oh, he's sovereign about everything, but his goodness is a mystery because we can't understand why this car accident, how that could be good. But we trust God that even though he caused it, uh, but um, it, we look at the Bible and we see uh, Jesus said that uh, the thief, who it, he means Satan, has come to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his job description. He's the one who steals. He's the one who destroys. He's the one who kills. Of Jesus, of himself, he said, but I came to give them life and to give abundant life. And so you can see it's Jesus' job description is life to express the goodness of God to us. It's the devil's job description to do all the other stuff. And God is so good, and his sovereignty shows up in this way, that he can step into any situation, and he can teach us through it. He can reveal his love to us through it, even though he didn't cause it. That doesn't mean he caused it. You know, I I have four children, and um, three of them boys. So I remember when our first two, uh, Chad and Brent, who are now 36 and 34, I remember when they... um, we're, we're starting to climb trees. And the question was, should we let them climb trees? Because they might fall out and break an arm, break a leg, or, I mean, even worse. But should we let them? And our approach was, they have a free will. And, you know, it, it, we can't protect them from everything bad that might happen in the world. We're not going to be there by, by their side 24 hours a day when they're 36, and so, yeah, we're going to let them climb trees. And if one of them falls out of a tree and breaks his arm, we'll be very sad about that. We'll love him. We'll care for him at the right time. We'll talk to him about what he learned. Uh, you know, what were you doing trying to reach out, grab that other branch that was too far? You couldn't reach it? Well, what do you think of that? But um, I never went out and shook the tree. <laughs> I never did that. I, I didn't go out and kick the tree or shake the branch thinking, yeah, he needs a lesson right now. I'm going I'm to wait till he gets right over the swing set and then I'll shake the tree and at least he'll break his arm. Never would do that. But that's, that's what we think God does. Now, I recognize we live in a fallen, broken world and there are times that kids fall out of the tree and I have to give them the exercise of their free will ready to stop in and step in and love on them, ready to go in and hold them and care for them when it happens. So we look at, we look at um, our relationship with Jesus in a very similar way, that uh, he, he's not shaking the tree. He does give us free will. This is a fallen world. There's a lot of bad stuff that happens. When it happens, he's just right there. He's right there. And, and he comforts us 
and loves us, but he doesn't shake the tree to, to make it happen. And the viewpoint that God is good, that he's always good, that he didn't shake the tree, he's not the one who made the accident happen or, the, or whatever it might be that, that has occurred, uh, th- that fact keeps us coming back to him over and over and over and over. Because this world, uh, the kingdom of darkness is still working here. And we don't always see a response to every prayer. A lot of reasons on that. I'm not going to take this message that direction right now. But just to say, we don't, we don't know why this person was healed and then prayed for somebody else and they weren't healed. number of reasons involved in that that we're just going to kind of say, big chunk of it is mystery, but the spiritual warfare, etc. So we're not going to try to evaluate that, evaluate, or evaluate that. But we are going to keep going back to God. Keep going back. Keep going back. Keep going back. Um, we, I planted a tomato patch this summer. And the, tomato, the tomatoes weren't ripening when I thought they should. And someone told me where there wasn't enough sunshine. There was too much rain and not enough sunshine. And so the tomatoes haven't ripened yet. So I had gone looking at the patch three or four times already and before I got that explanation. But I keep going back. I keep going back. And and look out the bathroom window every morning down at the tomato patch. Do I see red anywhere? Now, why is that? It's because I know that it is in the nature of tomatoes to ripen. That is how it works. And so even though they haven't ripened yet, I don't know why, I'm going to keep going back. And I'm going to keep looking. And we're getting some ripe tomatoes now. And the, th- the same thing applies to our relationship with God. It's in God's nature to heal. He's good. It's in his nature to heal. And so I, we keep going back. We can't figure it out, but we keep going back and we keep going back and keep going back because he loves us and he's good and it's in his nature to heal. And so I just want to affirm that message that Luke brought to us last week. I thought it uh, was really good and uh, really crucial for uh, the growth, our growth as a church body as as we are really growing and understanding a lot of these things more fully. But... um, uh, Today, what I want to do is talk about another aspect of um, life, another aspect of our heart response to God that can uh, undermine us and, and cause greater struggles in walking in faithfulness to God. Because that's what the series Life in the Wild is all about. It is, how, how do I keep walking? It, since it is wild, and the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, there's, there's conflict there. And, and, and we see storms that arise because it's like a front uh, the, between the two kingdoms. And h- how can we keep going? How can we keep persevering? And, and so today what I want to talk about is an issue that is, is really common. And it's a common thing that undermines our trust in God. And that is the feeling, the sense, I'm, I'm going to say the lie that we are alone. If, 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 if I know Jesus, then I'm never going to be alone. I'm never going to be alone. But it's really easy to slip into that thinking, to think I'm the only one who's ever experienced this particular problem. I'm the only one who's ever failed like this. You know, I, there must be something wrong with me. You know, that, there's something wrong with me. You know what we call that? That's shame. 
You know, guilt is when I've done something wrong, and I know I, I'm, I'm wrong. Well, how do we deal with guilt? Guilt. <laughs> the way we deal with guilt is we just say, Jesus, I agree with you. What I just did was not in alignment with your kingdom. And so I'm, that, that's what's called confessing. Confessing isn't, oh, God, please, 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 please forgive me. I'm you know, just an awful slug of a person. No, confession is, wow, you know, God, what I was just thinking, what I just did is not the way you, it's not in alignment with your kingdom. And uh, I just want to acknowledge that. I confess, I confess that. Confess means to say the same thing, to agree. And then we don't, it's not that we have to say then, oh God, forgive me. And if we don't say that, we're not forgiven. Because when Jesus died for us, he paid for every wrong thing we had done up to the first moment we met him. And he paid for every wrong thing from that point on in our lives. So it's already paid for. And you don't have to keep going back every event and confessing it. I mean, it doesn't hurt to have a friend that you confess to, but that's for your spiritual health. And that's, that's just so you don't keep any dark hidden places in your heart. But, um, so I, when I sin, I, I just say, God, that was wrong. That's not, that's not in alignment with your kingdom. And I'm so thank you so much that Jesus, that you already died for that. Thank you for that. I want to walk in the complete fullness of your work on the cross. But um, to this idea of loneliness, there was a man named Elijah in the Old Testament. It's, the story comes in 1 Kings. And Elijah was a man that had um, experienced a, a ton of powerful stuff. He had seen many powerful things. He had, he had been very faithful to God over the years. And Elijah, Elijah uh, came to a point where God gave him an assignment that really began probably the high point of his life more than anything else, it's the period that defines his life. And what God did was to give Elijah authority to command the rain to stop. And, and he said that the rain would not start again until Elijah exercised that authority over the rain to bring the rain back. So he has authority to tell it to stop, and he has authority to determine when the right time is for it to come back. Or at least he has the authority to be the agent of God when it's going to come back and to call it back into existence. And so Elijah uh, called for this drought. God gave him that authority because he wanted him to use it. Okay, remember that. He gave, them that author- gave him that authority because he wanted him to use it. And so Elijah called for a drought. And the whole nation of Israel entered into this three and a half year period of drought. And as they're going through this, this period, Elijah is just kind of hidden away at a couple different places that were places of loneliness, places of uh, being in the background, not being involved with the, the life of the nation. He goes through those three and a half years kind of being in the background the whole time. And, uh, and, and I think that there's a, there's a potential that his loneliness started during those days. Because no matter how strong we are, if you're isolated and if, if your life was running at, at 9.5 and now it's running at 2.5, after a while, you start to feel alone. And so Elijah came to the point after these three and a half years where it was time to uh, bring the rain back, to end the drought. And he's preparing for that. 
But in that preparation, what Elijah did was to challenge 450 of the priests of Baal and uh, challenge them to a contest on the top of Mount Carmel. And so they got there and uh, Elijah gives it. He also called in as many people from the nation of Israel as could come. And so you have uh, hundreds, I'm going to think thousands of people gathered because there were, we know there were 450 priests from Baal. But um, he sets this up and he says, here's what we're going to do. You make an altar, put an offering on it, call from heaven for your God to come and to consume it with fire. And he says, I'll do the same thing. And whoever whoever's God responds from heaven with fire, we will all agree to recognize that is the true God. And so the, the Baal priests built their altar and they're calling upon Baal to come and to consume it. And they get, they get frustrated and they're starting to cut themselves and which were some of the pagan practices associated, oftentimes associated as if uh, making a, a sacrifice of your blood is going to get your God to do something. And what we know is Jesus sacrificed his blood. So we don't have to cut ourselves. We don't have to prove anything. We don't have to do anything other than open our hearts up to him and then walk with him. But uh, after they had done, done their thing for a better part of the day, or at least for uh, half the day, Elijah builds his altar and then he calls on God. And the very first time he calls on God, fire just fell from heaven and it, it fell down, and it not only consumed the offering on the altar, it consumed the altar itself, stone, stone altar. This fire came down and just incinerated it all. It uh, evaporated all the water and just scorched, scorched that whole area. And now everyone there starts shouting, Yahweh is God. And so all the Israelites, now they're going to say, yeah, God, the Lord of Israel is the true God, the one true God. And so he sees this incredible display of power. And then he sees this incredible response, which at this point looks like repentance. And man, you're, 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 you're thinking this is repentance. And so what happened at that point? Well, King Ahab was there. He witnessed all of this. And Elijah says, get all the priests of Baal, or 450 of them. And he takes them to this other place and they execute all 450 of them. Now, to to understand that, you have to realize God was creating a nation to bless the world. He was creating a nation uh, that could birth the Messiah and that would bring about salvation for all nations. And this Baal worship had permeated Israel And Israel was just devastated spiritually by Baalism. And so for this nation to develop into what God wants it to be, you you can't have Baal worship on the scale that it was. And so Elijah kills all 450 of these priests. And notice this, the king of Israel was there. And there was no way that he couldn't have stopped Elijah if he wanted to. He had troops there. He had power there. He could have stopped this whole thing if he wanted to. And what that tells me is that Ahab was, had been impacted by what he had seen that day. And he was one of the ones that at least under his, under his voice, or at least quietly was saying, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is the one who answered with fire. Yahweh is the Hebrew name 
for God in the Old Testament. And so Elijah now feels like perhaps he and Ahab are going to work together. You know, maybe Ahab is going to be the one who's going to assist me in getting rid of Baal worship. And so he has in his mind now, see, it was Jezebel, Ahab's wife, who was a foreign uh, from another nation, and she brought Baal worship into Israel. And so what he has to do is get Jezebel straightened out. You know, someone has to take charge. Someone has to exercise some authority and tell her no more of this. And who better to do that than the king who is also her husband? And so Elijah then prays for the, the rain to come. And when he sees a little cloud out over the Mediterranean Sea, Mount Carmel is just 20 miles or so, 30 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. He, he sees the rain coming and he, he sees a storm coming. And it's just a little cloud at that moment, but in the spirit, he saw this becoming a torrential downpour. And so he goes to his new buddy, Ahab, and he says, you better get your chariots ready and get back to Jezreel right away because there's a big storm coming. Now, Jezreel was a city right along the Mediterranean Sea, and it was like um, Ahab's summer house. It was like a getaway place for him. And so Ahab takes um, Elijah's word for it, gets his chariots together, and, and they start out for Jezreel. And then all of a sudden, Elijah, man, he wants to go too. Now, there's no reason for him to go to Jezreel other than he wants to be there to see what's going to happen with Jezebel. And so he runs, and God gives him supernatural power to run, and he outruns the chariots. Can you believe that? He's running ahead of these chariots. I didn't check to see how fast a chariot could go, but I'm going to guess at least 30 miles an hour, and a, a human being can't run that fast, not for that distance. Well, I don't think he even could hit that in, in for a second. But um, I think that as he's running, he has a big smile on his face. I think he, you know, he's just kind of like running along where his feet are almost not hitting the ground, and he's grinning ear to ear, and he's, he's saying, it's really happening. It, it's really happening. We're going to get this straightened out. Everything I've been dreaming of, my mission, my call, it's going to be completed. It's going to happen. And, and he has this, his expectations have been uh, just are being met, and they're exceeding them. And so they get to Jezreel, and Ahab goes out and walks through the doors. I mean, just picture some tall wooden doors that would be built in a king's house. And Ahab goes in the house, and uh, Elijah is waiting outside, I'm guessing, on a, on a, under a covered porch. And he's just waiting anxiously for Ahab to come back out and to say, you know, high five him and, and to say, Elijah, we did it. You know, I told her this is the way it was, and from now on, she's going she's gonna to submit to the God of Israel and follow his teaching. But instead of that, what happened was, uh, actually, we read it here, okay? In 2 Kings 19, verses 1 and 2, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Now that's a, kind of a 
complicated sentence structure to say you're going to die. By today, by this time tomorrow, you're going to be dead. And so how does Elijah respond to that? Is there boldness that rises up in him? I mean, he's a bold guy. He, he's, not been, he's not been shy. He hasn't been one to hang back. He's not like one that wilts in the face of resistance. And yet, in this case, in this case, he crumbles. And when Jezebel made this pronouncement against him, he, you know, for a lot of reasons, he just, he just can't take it. And uh, there, there, there was an, a spiritual attack that comes against him through this. It wasn't just a message from an enemy, but there was, there was a spiritual empowerment from the dark side that is attacking Je- uh, Elijah through these words that she brings. And I, I was asking myself, what was it for him that opened him up to this spiritual attack in such a dramatic way? And I think that for Elijah, he had already begin to, begun to slip into the idea that he was alone. In fact, on Mount Carmel, when they, they, he was describing the contest and he had spoken to the people of Israel and gave them a little pep talk, one of the things he said was, I'm the only prophet left in Israel. I'm the only one. And he felt that way, but it wasn't true. Because there was an assistant to the king named Obadiah because of his position and power in the kingdom. He had saved the lives of a hundred of the prophets and he had them hidden away in caves. And so we know that it wasn't true that all the prophets were gone. And right after this, we see that um, uh, there was a school of the prophets in, in some of the subsequent stories uh, close to this time, time frame. And so there were other prophets, but he had come to the conclusion that he was alone. And when that thinking permeates our minds and when we embrace it and when we entertain it, it, it might as well be true because we start to think as people that are alone and we start to act as people that are alone and we start to experience self-pity and, and, and we think it's not fair. We, we start justifying why we're alone. And it's probably almost all the time other people's faults, isn't it? We, have you ever evaluated why you felt alone and concluded you had screwed up? Any of us that look at it that way? I was just going to say, if you are, you're, you're an advanced spiritual person. That's good. That's, that's maturity. Um, but I, I don't think that in general... Uh, we, we think in terms that are self-justifying. And Elijah comes out with a statement later that at least appears to me to be self-justifying. And so um, Elijah now has been already thinking about being alone. Uh, he, he has been out in the wilderness, so he has been alone, but that's different than what he's calling alone here. That he, he's, he's talking about being the only one that's moving this direction. Not that there aren't other people around, but the, I'm the only one going this direction. And so uh, his, his conclusion that he was alone and that there was no one else moving in the direction that he was moving in opened him up to cynicism, to self-pity, and ultimately uh, this, this attack from um, Jezebel had a place to, to grip him. And so he's now uh, filled with fear. And verse uh, 3 and 4 says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba, 
in Judah, which was just, just a little ways from, um, from Jezreel. He left his servant there. I think there's paranoia that's setting in that he's fearful of everybody because Jezebel has a grip on the nation. She wants him dead. Everybody else is afraid of Jezebel. So what they were shouting just earlier that same day, Yahweh is Lord. Those are just going to be words to most of them. It's just like Jesus. When Jesus came on the day of the triumphal entry, same people that were uh, calling out, uh, calling him out as the Messiah and praising him as the Messiah. It's the same people that later said, give us his head. Uh, We would rather have Barabbas than Jesus. And so the same sort of thing is happening here. But um, it goes on to say, he, he abandons his servant. He goes another day into the wilderness and he came to a broom bush, which is a, just a desert bush that sometimes could grow tall enough that he could sit under it. He sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. And so here's where he enters into su- such great despair that he doesn't see any future for himself. He sees no purpose for himself and, and he's so tired, he just wants to give up and check out totally. So what happens from there? He, um, he um, collapses in the wilderness out of exhaustion and is uh, sleeping when an angel comes to him and taps him on the shoulder in 1 Kings 19, 5 to 7. says, all at once, you know, he's collapsed. An angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by the head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate, I want to stop there. Um, I don't understand why an angel has to bake bread the same way we do. Now, I think there are some insights we can get from this. I, I haven't gotten them yet, but I'm giving you all that assignment. This week, be thinking about this, okay? Why did the angel have to bake it? I mean, there's, that's, there's something deeper there than just the details of what happened. So seriously, uh, just ask God to show you some insights into that. And if, if you get any insights into it, email me and we can interact about it, okay? Um, it wasn't the point of my message, so I didn't take the time to really to press into it. But uh, he ate and drank and then lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back to a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. In other words, you need what I have for you. You need my strength. You need God's strength in order for you to keep going and do what you need to do. And what, what, what he does now is he sets out for um, Mount Sinai. He sets out for the mountain range in the very southern part of Israel by the uh, Sinai Peninsula and, and um, heads there. It takes him 40 days. It's a 200-mile walk. It's called Mount Horeb. But um, it's the same mountain that Moses received the law on. It's the same mountain that uh, God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. And so it's really the place that everything he believes began. And it's also the furthest away from Jezreel that you can go without actually leaving the promised land. And so he still does, he doesn't want to leave God. He doesn't want to, he's not, he doesn't want to, uh, just uh, chuck this all and leave God. But he does, he does want to encounter God. And, and he knows that there's something about going back to the beginning that will give him the encounter with God that he needs. And, and I think this is a prophetic statement right now for any of you who are sitting here 
and you realize you've drifted. You realize you're not where you're supposed to be. You're not loving God like you, like you used to. You're, you're not walk, moving towards him. You're not walking towards him. And I, I believe what God's calling us to do is go back to the beginning. You know, go off by yourself for some time and, and just sit and contemplate the beginning. You know, what happened at the beginning? What was it like when you first began to believe that Jesus was really God's son? And what was it like when it dawned on you he really was and you opened your heart to him? What did you experience in those days? So just in your heart and in your mind, just go back to the beginning and, and begin to reconnect with God. Begin to reconnect with his purpose for your life and intimacy that uh, he wants for you. Because God really wants intimacy for all of us. That's the foundation of everything, is an intimate face-to-face relationship with him. So Elijah is um, now on a journey to get to Mount Horeb. And when he gets there, he, um, verses 9 and 10, he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And I think that question was physical. Uh, you know, why are you down here when you know, the last instructions you got from me were, were up there? It may have been that God, through that angel, told him to go, uh, to go down to this mountain. But um, God's, God's asking him, what's going on? Have you, have you examined your heart? Have you asked yourself, you know, why am I feeling like this? Why am I experiencing these things emotionally? And... Um, Elijah gives this answer that he had prepared. He says, I've, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The, Israel, the Israelites, but you could say the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your, your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So God speaks to him, and it's not a rebuttal. Because this, Romans 10 tells us that this was an accusation against the nation of Israel. And so God speaks back to Elijah, and the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains, something like a tornado, tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Whenever Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And you know what Elijah does? He gives exactly the same answer he's already given, word for word. That, that, that's, how, that's, that's why I would say he's practiced this. He's really thought through it. But God speaks to him through a gentle whisper. And, and the power, man, we want the power. We want to experience. We want to be thankful for every evidence of God's power, every time an answered prayer, every time we see his goodness, no matter how small it is or how great it is, we want to just stop right then and thank him for it. And praise him for it. But it's not in the power. The, the center of gravity in our hearts and lives is not, is not to be resting in the power. And when he whispers to Elijah, what does a whisper do? What does a whisper do? If, if I whisper, um, if I just whisper something...
Huh? What? And how much you like me will depend, will determine your next, next move. You're either going to take a couple steps closer to me, say, I didn't hear that. What was that? Or you might just not care and walk away. But, but God's whispering to him, a gentle voice, a small voice, and, and you whisper into a person's ear. And that, that's what intimacy is. And what God's calling him to now is to get the center of his heart, kind of like the center of gravity in his heart, back on intimacy with God. Uh, to get away from the idea that he's alone, to get away from the despair, to move away from the self-justification and everything that comes with it. And to center his heart back in intimate relationship. Because it's out of intimate relationship that mission comes. And it's out of intimacy with God that empowerment comes. And it's not, I, I would never propose that Elijah had totally left intimacy, but I know that it's possible for us in the midst of pursuing a vision, it's possible for us to have the center of gravity in our hearts shift from real intimate relationship with God to the vision. And it's the vision that becomes the thing. And it's the vision that we set our hopes on. And it's what we perceive the success of the vision, how, how it'll look, it starts to become the thing that we're leaning on. And then when it doesn't happen the way we think, or it doesn't happen at the timing we think, or it, like in Elijah's case, it sure looked like it was going to happen, but then it, it was pulled away. That, that's when real despair, that's when we're open to despair and loneliness. But he's calling Elijah back to intimacy. And that's what he's calling every one of us back to. And it's, it's out of intimacy that the power flows. It's out of intimacy with him that our, our minds are enlightened and we see where God's moving and what he's doing. And it's out of intimacy that we begin to understand our, uh, our identity in Christ. And we begin to operate out of that and to actually walk in the authority I mean, it's an amazing thing to think Elijah was given authority to call a drought and then to end a drought. But if you really know what God's done in your life and you really begin to understand the authority he's given to us today as believers, it's just amazing what, what he's called us to do and what he's empowered us to do and the authority he's given us. And we see that and we understand it out of intimacy with God. And then we walk in it when we're focused on and experiencing real intimacy with God. And so uh, he's, he's calling Elijah back to that type of intimacy out of a kind of like vision drift or a heart drift and, and calling him back. And notice the part worship played in this. When, when the uh, wind comes, Elijah steps back into the cave wisely. And then, then he was there when, when the uh, earthquake come. I think I might have left the cave, but uh, uh, apparently he didn't. And when the fires, the, he's still in the cave. And when he hears that whisper, that gentle voice, what's he do? And when, remember, what did he do? What did he do? Pardon me? He did come out to the front of the cave, but what else did he do with that? He covered his face. He took his cloak and he covered himself. He knew he was coming into the presence of God in a special way. He knew he was stepping into intimacy. And, and that was an act of worship on his part when he covered his face. 
Now, we never have to cover our face because Jesus has already made us righteous. And this new covenant we have with, with God through him removes the need for us to cover our face. There are other, lots of scripture about that. But in this case, that was worship. And when you hear that voice of God, what do you do? What, what, should, what, what, what do we do? We worship. And, you know, going back to the beginning, I remember in the first days that I really encountered the Holy Spirit. Um, and I'd be driving down the road. I remember one day I was on, headed to another town and I felt God's presence. So I turned around and drove back to my office where I could be alone. So when, when, that vo- when you hear his voice, when you experience his presence, that's the time to pull over to the side of the road. You know, if you're in a meeting, that's the time to go to the bathroom. Save your breaks for those moments where you can be alone just for a moment and worship. Maybe in some cases, that's the time to stand up and shout. But it's, it's responding to his longing for intimacy with us that renews us and restores us. And so you go on and, and God speaks to him. He says, go back the way you came and, and go to the desert and anoint these other guys. So he's saying to him, your mission's not done. Your mission's not done. I have something else for you to do. And then he says, I, I reserve 7,000 in Israel. And so he's saying, in fact, you're not alone either. You might think you are. You might feel you are. You're, you're living your life right now like you are, but you're not alone. And his voice restores. And so I think it's awesome to think of this, you know, um, and, and saying it this, I say it this way just to kind of catch our attention. But um, you, know, you know what anointing is. You know, anointing is when the Holy Spirit is on someone for uh, the purpose of accomplishing what God wants, and it's refreshing and life-giving. But, um, and, and when we're anointed, our words come with life. And realize this, God's voice is anointed. Okay, that's, that's an odd statement because God's the origin of everything. But think of it this way. When God speaks to us, there's anointing that flows with it. It's not just not like a transfer of information, but there's anointing that comes and it brings new life to our hearts if, if we'll understand that and accept it. And we can walk out of loneliness when that happens. So um, mission flows from heart. It flows from God's heart into our heart and then is expressed through our lives. When, when we begin to hold on to the mission as if, it or his origin is in our hearts, then that's when we're going to start feeling alone. And that's when we're going to start feeling defeated. But to realize that worshiping and responding to his voice is what gives us uh, restoration and gives us confidence that we're not alone and allows us to walk in anointing. So we're going to worship. And um, it's a great time just to take some of these thoughts that speak to you and uh, engage with them. And uh, Lee's going to come up and, and lead us through our offering as, as we go into this time of worship.